As you can see by the color purple here, that uh, we have now come round to the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent, we restart the cycle of the mystery of salvation, of Christ becoming a human being, of dying for us, of raising again in the foundation of His church. We begin that cycle. And in the Eastern Church, the church here, they also have Advent like we do, but they start their year a little earlier, back on September 1st, which is the beginning of the Roman tax year. As a CPA, that sort of warms my heart. But in the Western, <laughs> but in the Western Church, we say, you know, it all really starts on the first Sunday of Advent. So this is also the beginning of the church year, and we are thinking a very special way of the year to come for us uh, together in Christ. Now, the term Advent, of course, comes from the Latin word Adventus, means coming. And we think, well, obviously with Christmas, we're talking primarily about that time when people hung on to God's promise to bring the Messiah, those centuries they waited for the promised Messiah. But it also has another meaning. There's a, that's the first coming of Christ. But the second coming of Christ is His second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead that we proclaim in our creed. And Advent is actually about both of those. It's basically saying we're not just looking back in history and trying to remember another time when other people were waiting. Isn't that nice? We're saying we're in the same position they are. We are also waiting for that long-expected Savior to come in glory as He promised. So that's Advent, the two means, the two comings of Christ. Now, the main theme of Advent is we find that in both of the New Testament readings today. And one of those, of course, is don't let yourself be taken by surprise. In the gospel, Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and it swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In our passage from the Apostle Paul from Romans, Stay alert is the message. Besides this, you know the time, that the hours come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand, the day of Christ's appearance. So what's the solution? How are we sure not to be taken by surprise? How do we, how do we stay alert? And the traditional solution, of course, is one of the three great theological virtues, hope. Remember, there are three virtues. Other things that we can think of all sorts of uh, prudence and things are things that in human terms we can develop. But faith, hope, and love are gifts from God. No amount of effort will get us divine faith, hope, and love. They're a gift of God, a, a gift God gives when we ask, but they're a gift of God. Then they're essential to our salvation. So what, will, let's, what do we look at today together? Since hope is so important, hope is the main theme of this waiting as we await for Christ's appearance, the theme of hope. What is hope? How can, what's the risk? What are the things that can make us fall away from hope? They call it the sins against hope. And then we'll say, okay, how can repentance be that special tool that avoids those sins? A very special ongoing tool that can keep us from those two terrible sins which can deny us our hope. So what is hope? What are the sins that can separate us from that saving hope? And how can repentance be that lifeline that holds us on to hope? So what is hope? It's a confident assurance in God, God's promises. We can trust God. God will deliver. That's what hope is. And the two sins against hope have to do with God's mercy. 
And the first is the sin of despair. The sin of despair is basically a lack of confidence in God's mercy. We just can't believe it. It's just too good to believe. We give up the sin of despair. We can't believe God's promise somehow. And this is incredible. To me as a Christian, when I look at the cross, we need to remember when we're tempted by despair. We need to remember that can you imagine when we look the Lord Jesus as judge of the living dead to say, the reason I gave up, talk to the Father that this wasn't good enough. My sin was bigger than this. It's pride. You know, it looks like humility, but it's actually the sin of pride, isn't it? It looks like humility. Oh, my sins are so great. There's no hope for me. You know, God's only being just condemning me. But every time we despair, we're saying this isn't good enough. Christ's blood shed on the cross is giving her isn't good enough. My sin is bigger than God. It's the supreme act of pride. My sin is bigger than God. Looks like humility, the exact opposite. It's like when Paul tells us the enemy dresses himself like an angel of light. It's not humility, it's pride. Then we have presumption. This is, an over, we say, an over-reliance on God's mercy. In some ways, what reliance is, what, 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 this is, what this is like when we talk about presumption is it's sort of like back in college or high school when you're doing a term paper and you say, I still have three weeks. <laughs> and instead of being a call to action, it's a call for delay. What's the rush? No need to act. There will be plenty of time. But in either case, here's what happens. You know, a, a terrible thing with, with people who, who abuse children, one of, the hor- one of the horrible things of how they operate that, we, that people are trained in who try to protect children is abusers want to separate children from those who love and take care of them. They, want, they need to separate them from their parents. Now, it sort of works that way with our enemy. Is God is the great I am. God exists in the now. If we ever meet God, the only place we can ever say yes to God is now, in the present. The past is gone. The past is history. We can't do anything about it. It's hopeless, quite literally. There's nothing we can do to change it. And the future is an illusion. It doesn't exist because by the time it hits us, it will be the present. There is no separate future. When it hits us, it will be the present. So the only possible time we can meet God is now. But we can always meet him there. So the enemy tries with despair to deflect us to the past. Concentrate on the past. We can't do anything about that. Just feel miserable. It's, not, it's, a, it's a contrition that doesn't lead to repentance. Or concentrate on the future. Again, instead of concentrating on what we can do now, how can we act looking forward to the future? Putting everything off on some future day. Despair looking to the past. Presumption looking to the future when the only place we will ever find God, ever say yes, is here and now. It's pretty serious business. The Lord Jesus solemnly warns us against both despair and against the sin of presumption. Look at despair. Uh, It's a parable of the talents. He talks about a nobleman who's going off, and he has people run his business. So he takes three of his servants, his employees, and asks them, gives them money, and says, invest and take care of things while I'm gone. And one of the employees, though, so lacks any confidence, is so afraid of messing things up that he simply buries the money. He buries it. He didn't even want to try. And when the master comes back, 
The others come forward and say, here's how I've invested. And he says, he gives them even more responsibility. But he comes to this one. And he says, well, I knew you were a hard person. You were a hard boss. So I want you to know, here's your money, safe and sound. It's really cold to hear what Jesus says about this as an answer. The master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Despair froze him. Yes, here's what you gave me. Be satisfied. No. What about presumption? It's a story of a wedding feast. And we might miss it if we don't realize in the ancient world, remember how you get cards now from people with weddings saying, mark the date? Is people are told in advance, and so in the actual story we're told they're going to tell the people who had already been invited, agreed to come, that now's the time. Okay, now's the official welcome, you come forward. And they didn't want to come. Now this is an embarrassment, having an empty hall, imagine a wedding a day, a beautiful day, this is an embarrassment. So he tells the servants, look, we need to get people in here. Go out there. He says, bring in the good, bring in the bad, bring everybody and fill the hall. Talking about the abundance of God's mercy, calling us in. The good and the bad, he specifically says. So far, so good. Presumption loves this. But what happens when the master goes into the wedding feast? His eye is immediately caught by someone. He's not dressed for a wedding. And he comes over to him and he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. So despair and, and presumption both basically frees us. We don't things, do things because despair says, what's the use? Presumption says, why bother? And Jesus warns us about the terrible judgment on both. So how do we avoid both of those traps? Well, our key is, you know, we love matter matters, and so that's why we wear purple. This is not a fashion statement. Well, perhaps for our bishop. But for the rest of us, uh, uh, you know, we, we take it out at certain times of the year to remind us of penitence, of, of repentance, of the need to, to go back to basics, a need for a reality check, a course adjustment. Okay, that's what it's about. So purple is a reminder, just as in Lent, now, it's not as true. Lent is a high penitential season. We're getting ready for Good Friday, so there's a sense of, of deep solemnity. But still, our focus in Advent, even with the joy of Christmas, is our need to be ready, to get ourselves ready, to look back and to double-check. that every, Like when you get ready for the Christmas festivities, make sure you have everything set for Christmas. You have all the presents, you have all the food for the meals, to make sure we're getting everything set to check, to have a reality check. So remember, the first thing the church is telling us is repentance is not a one-time thing. It's not like we repent and have done that and move on. Repentance is a lifetime endeavor. We are always going back and checking ourselves against God's model. You know, we're trying to be imitators of God. We're always looking to that model and making corrections. That's what repentance is. It never stops. During the Reformation, the Reformers like to say, you know, I will spare you the Latin pun, but it basically is... The Reformed Church is one that always keeps reforming, always going back to the Scriptures, always double-checking, are we still following what's said in Scripture? Are we still being faithful to what we received? The Reformed Church is always reforming, always looking back. So looking back, what repentance is at the very core of the Gospel. If you ask people in the earliest Gospel, which is the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel, 
What are the first words of Jesus to announce the heart of the, the content of his public ministry? What is his message? Repent and believe in the gospel. The first words out of his mouth, so to speak, in his word, repent and believe in the gospel. Now notice why are those two connected? Because you can't do one without the other. You see, one of the truths of repentance is that if we're looking this way, we can't see that way. That's why at baptism, symbolically, the church in early times would have the renunciation of Satan looking one direction and turn around. That's where the word conversion actually comes from. Conversion is the Latin word literally for turn around, is they physically turned around and looked the other way, reminding ourselves you can't look here and look there. It can't be done. To turn here is to not look there. We have to turn away to look towards something. Looking toward means turning. I have no illusions about this. If you can still see there, you haven't turned. That's what it's telling us. If you can still see over there, you clearly have not turned over here. That's what it means with conversion. So what are we turning from? There are two things. The first we have in the reading from Romans today, we're turning away from sin, actual things that rebel and fight against God. Paul says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the first thing we turn away from is we turn away from out-and-out -out sin and turn to obedience to God. But that is not the end of the story. Remember, people could do that with John the Baptist. Right, John also preached a baptism of repentance, but the Lord's baptism isn't the same. What ha what's, what's different here? What does Jesus say? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, we jump to the, to the end of the verse. You know, let's take up my, your cross and follow me. But what's the first thing? He says, let him deny himself. Why? As long as we're holding on to the world... Until we let go, we can't hold on to Jesus. It can't be done. We cannot take up the cross if we're still holding the world in our hands. It can't be done. It's simply impossible. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, put down the world, and take up the cross with the hands that are now free and follow me. This is so foreign to the world we live in. You see, we live in a consumer society. This is what makes our economy work. We are told, we are flattered with the vision that we are the center of our universe. The, the whole purpose of every institution, of every store, is to make us happy, is to meet our needs. We are a world of Amazon where we were forever rating everything we run into. You know, you're probably thinking right here, the music, oh, I give that a five. We have a little guy preaching, that's a one. Uh, you know, uh, you know you're, you're basically going through the, through, the, uh, through the whole list. But we think, we're trained to think that way, right? Everything is about me. What's the effect on me? And actually, we're told, what does Jesus say? He says, the new commandment I give you is that you love one another as I've loved you. Complete self-giving love. It's the exact opposite of consumers. Instead of being supreme takers... We're supreme givers without looking at the cost. Remember, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, the one who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The complete opposite of consumerism. So what do we do? We turn away from sin, but we also turn away, even for things that aren't sinful, from a, from, from a we turn to, to grasp our cross. We let go of the world and the world's vision of a consumer world 
And we take up a vision of service, of taking up the cross, of loving others as God loves them, as Jesus gave us that example. So how do we do that? Shouldn't be afraid of that, but we say, why? And I think the real way, how do we cast out fear is with the truth of the gospel, is we confront our fears by looking at them in the face and say, what does the gospel say about these things? So let's look at two of our fears that stop us from true repentance. The first one is, I'd like to do this, but it's really too hard for me. I mean, sincerity, it's too hard. I really can't do this. I wish I could. There are people like that. They pick pictures on them with halos, but that's not me. That's why it's too hard for me. And there's some truth in that in the sense that when he says, be perfect as your Father is perfect, that's a tall order. Clearly, we can't do that in our natural strength. So what's, this, what's the good news? This is gospel. What's the good news? The first thing that will never let you down, a fundamental truth of the good news. God never asks for what he does, doesn't give. God never asks us for one bit more than he gives us. That's an incredible truth. We can, we can lose all fear when we grasp that truth. He will never, not once, ask us for anything that he doesn't provide, even if we're not aware of it. You see, this like manna. It comes when we need it. Grace comes in the moment. We can't store it up. That's why we know we need God. There's nothing ashamed of be needing Jesus. But it will come in the moment. But to realize, the enemy says, this is too much for you. We say, no. By definition, I have God's solemn promise, sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that there will never be a moment where I will not be with a grace that you can say yes. There will always, you've, you've, you'll have a courage you never knew. Jesus said when you're arrested, he said, don't, don't plan in advance what you're going to say because I promise you, when the moment comes, I will give you the words. Trust me, I will give you the words. But you won't get them early. You won't get them the night before. You'll get them at that moment. Grace will always be there and it comes in the moment. Another thing that's beautiful is I think a lot of us have a misunderstanding of, 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 um, of repentance. We think repentance is like cleaning up the house because company is coming. A truly awesome task. Okay, cleaning up the, you know, the, 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 the house because company is coming. Or it's like when you, you know, back in college where you're thinking you're always moving, you know, like every, from one place to another, and you'd have these moving things saying, I'm moving, so you have to pack up everything and then people come over and help move. And you look at this, all this mess you have to pack up. We think that getting repentance means cleaning up for God. I get my life all in order and straight, and then Jesus can come in. And all because, you know, I've, I've got to work. And I, we look and I say, it's impossible. Look at this. I'm never going to fix it. Four hours till everybody shows up. Then we hear a knock on the door. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the friend who shows up early to help pack. Repentance isn't something we do to earn Jesus coming. And Jesus comes. We can't repent without him. It'll, it'll look like repentance. It won't be the real thing. All God asks us to do is not to clean up first, is simply to open the door and let him begin his work in us. The only real repentance is the product of the Holy Spirit. It's God's work, not ours. God has come to do the packing. Second fear is, it's too late for me. I've really done some horrible things. I've made some real messes in my life that aren't just going to go away. I've lost years. It's, it's, I wish I had known, but that's how it is. It's all gone. Well, another glorious truth of the gospel against that fear is God only cares about where we are now. That means it's always possible, no matter what happened. 
He doesn't care to say yes. This is not just the New Testament. Look at the Old Testament with Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18. I love this chapter. They were actually complaining, by the way, that the context of the chapter was God seems to be too soft because he wasn't just. He left open the possibility of people repenting. They thought that wasn't fair to people who've been playing by the rules all along. It's tough to be righteous. Okay. And here's what God says. He says, if a wicked person turns away from all the sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. That's what I hang on to. None of the transgressions he has committed will be remembered against him. God doesn't care about the past. He cares about now. It's always about, no matter what that past looks like, to say yes. Everything changes with that yes. Matter of fact, we don't even lose our place in line because we're late. One of the joys of the gospel is that line from Jesus who says, I tell you, many who are first will be last, and the last first. The first person we know for sure to enter the kingdom of God was a thief on the cross who turned to Jesus at his last breath. Many of those who are first will be last, and the last first. So every day, every moment is a time we can say yes to God. I love the line from Paul in 2 Corinthians, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. In the middle of sin, we can stop saying yes and the angels sing. It's always possible, no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, to say yes and everything changes. So we might say, I want to say yes. How do I say yes? And I think the real key to an honest yes with God is... You know the old hymn, Just As I Am? They used to play Billy Graham Crusades with their altar calls. Is that we basically have to be honest where we are and not try to pretend we have what we don't, just simply give what we have to God. Give it all, but give what we have to God. There's a wonderful story. I love one of my heroes. It's a father in the story. Imagine he had a son who was tormented by demons and was rolled and had terrible physical damage to him. And Jesus was gone. And the disciples were, were given the commission to take care of these things, and they were trying to heal them, but they weren't successful. So he comes back, and there's a crowd. Well, what's going on? Why can't they heal him? And the father comes up and doesn't want to bother Jesus. Look, he said, you know, if you, could, um, if you could help my kid, I'd really appreciate it. And Jesus said, if you could, if you could, all things are possible to someone who believes. All things. Do you remember what his response is? This is what repentance looks like. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And here's the miracle that we might miss. The Gospels are very clear to put the, the, the connection of healing and belief. You know, your faith is saved. You know, healing and belief. The father didn't have much. He had some faith, but not nearly enough. That's what he says. I believe, but not enough. Help my unbelief. The miracle wasn't the child being healed, which is wonderful. The deeper miracle was he gave him divine faith. That was witnessed by the miracle of the healing. Healings only occur with faith. He didn't start there, but when he asked for faith, God gave it to him. And the witness was his son was well. He said, oh, I don't have faith. I'm not one of those people. Here's the best I've got. Can you work with it? You know, give me something. Give me what I need. And the answer was always yes. It's another story I love. One of my heroes in the Bible is Peter. And we might miss something about this story. Remember, Peter, of course, had denied the Lord three times in his passion. 
And later on, after the resurrection, uh, the Lord Jesus meets him, and they really have a conversation for the first time. And it's going to be painful, you can imagine, after what had happened. Jesus had predicted the, um, the betrayals, and they had happened. So the conversation which we read, you might have Bishop Stewart's remembered his, uh, his consecration, we read this gospel. Let me just read a few verses here that are much deeper than we may think. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, remember Simon had betrayed him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Something we don't see in the English text, which is very clear in the Greek, is there's a play on words here that's extremely powerful. There are different words for love in Greek. And the strongest word is agapao, which is to, is to love, like we would say, like you love a spouse, love a, you know, love a family member. In Philo, a very deep friendship type of love. It's not on the same level. It's, it's beautiful and good, but it's not the same level. If we look at this text, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Remember, Peter was the one who said, I can't speak for the rest of them, but I'm going to be here. Remember, he was the one who was all bravado before he betrayed him. You know, I can't talk about them, but I'll be here. I'll give my life for you. So he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's learned his lesson. He doesn't even dare say he loves Jesus. What he actually says is, Lord, I'm very fond of you. I have deep affection for you. He, he answers with a different verb. He says, feed my sheep. He says again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, I have deep affection for you. And finally, the last time he says, Jesus changes verbs. He says, okay, do you have deep affection for me? And he said, yes, I do. So what's that telling us is a miracle. Jesus announces the miracle immediately. We might miss it. Remember with the man with the son who was possessed by the demon, the miracle was he had the faith and the evidence of that faith was the healing. The miracle was the faith. Peter wanted that love. He didn't have it. He didn't lie about having something he didn't, but he gave everything he had to God. This I can go this far. I can tell you from my heart. You know everything. I really have affection for you. Jesus can turn that into love, and he does. Why? He then tells him, he said, then he talked about the way by which he would glorify, glorify God in his death. Death has always been seen in the church as a sign of love the virtue of love. Only love can overcome death. Can we surrender our life to God? So Peter, by being real, by giving what he had, no more but no less, here's what I have. God can convert that into the real thing. He can take us the extra step. God always does the heavy lifting. So Advent is our church call to wake up, and the church focuses us to, invites us to focus on repentance. It says we've got to turn away from sin and turn away from self, but not negatively. The reason we do that is if we don't turn away from sin, we can't turn towards God. If we don't deny ourselves, let go of the world, we can't pick up our cross and follow Jesus. It's never too hard. God does the heavy lifting. It's never too late. God doesn't care about the past. He only cares about the yes we offer now. So let us pray this day for the grace to turn to God with the eyes of hope, a divine gift. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Amen.